Welcome to the OmniTalk 2021 Ask an Expert series, the series where we go deep with experts on the key subjects and ideas that are shaping the future of retail. I'm your host, Chris Walton, and today we're going deep in understanding how and why the consumer purchase journey has changed and what we as brands and marketers can do about it. Because as the traditional phrase, path to purchase, may no longer be enough on its own. Joining me today to provide his expertise on that subject is Frank Riva, the VP of Marketing at 1010 Data. Frank, welcome to the show. Hey, Chris. Good to be here. Thank you. Yeah, man. Now, gosh, I think I've known you now going on two, uh, two years, so it's good to finally sit down. We've had a lot of folks from 1010 Data on over the, I'd say, the last year especially. Uh, so it's good to sit down with you, kind of one of the man, be- or the man behind the scenes, so to speak. Now, before we get started, I want to tell everyone, for those watching live, if you, ha- if you do have a question for Frank or for us on LinkedIn, just be sure to drop it into the chat and let's get that open and honest dialogue that AmiTalk is famous for and get that going with our fans online here while we've got Frank. No questions off limits, so we expect all of you watching to, to put him to the test, test his mettle and, and see where things go. But, but Frank, to that point, as people start chatting here, uh, what gives you, quote unquote, the moniker of an expert? You know, why are you an expert on the subject of path to purchase in today's day and age around marketing? Well, you called me an expert, not myself. <laughs> but, That's true. Uh, <laughs> true. Are you living up to what I'm calling you, Frank? Yeah. Um, I've been involved with uh, technology and analytic solutions, uh, predominantly focused on uh, retail, CPG, supply chain logistics for over 20 years now. Right. And, you know, if you look at what we do at 1010 Data, we're really about really uh, focusing in large part about consumer spending dynamics and you know, where things are, where they're going. So we pretty much eat, breathe, and sleep this every single day. We're very much immersed in it. So, you know, a lot of this is just part of what we do uh, on a daily basis. Well, yeah, not letting, I like think letting the fans that are watching live and then listening on the audio too, or watching the video playback, I think, you know, part of the way, the, how this all originated, seeing how the sausage is made, so to speak, is we were, we were talking and, and you and the team, uh, the great team there at 1010 Day were showing me some of the new things you were working on and and some of the diagrams that you guys have been working up and, and walking me through them and walking me through how things have changed. And I thought it was really interesting. It was like, hey, we've got to talk about this more. This is good stuff. And so I never do this where we do a live event with slides. I, like, I actually usually generally hate slides. I loathe them. And I said to you guys, like, in this case, I actually want like four slides right out of the get-go. So I'm going to load those up for everyone now. And again, if you're listening on audio, you can always go to Talk, check out the video. Uh, or we'll have some information in the notes, of course, from the show too. If we look at this, you know, the first section is the pre-purchase, right? And, and I'm going to speak today very much from an e-commerce perspective because there is a uniqueness to e-commerce versus what we see on the brick and mortar side. There's some overlap, obviously, but we're going to focus on the unique pieces of e-commerce today because this is what we're hearing from our constituents the most is, you know, relatively speaking, we know the brick and mortar world, but we really need to better understand what's happening on the e-commerce site, especially coming off of 2020, where where we saw unprecedented changes, right? So Mm -hmm. when we look at the first stage of of the the journey, and, and this is also the first stage of path to purchase, it's really that notion of, What's happening before you buy a product, the pre-purchase phase? And there's really two key components to that, right? Okay. And, and what we see is the first big one is search, right? And 
you know, what's interesting here is, is that, you know, if we were to go maybe even, you know, three, four, five years ago from an, you know, from a digital online perspective, you know, you probably would have heard, yeah, I go to Google and do a search to look for something. Right. Yeah. Today, you know, you're looking at approximately on average two out of three searches for people looking to buy something online, start a Google, uh, excuse me, Amazon now. Right. Right. So, and if you incorporate, you know, you add probably walmart.com to that, you're probably looking well over 70% of searches start with one of those two companies. So, you know, the, the dynamic has changed, not to mention what you can start to look at now. You can start to look at that data and what are people looking for? And this is where I think you, you first start to see that notion of known versus unknown. You know, we can certainly assume as a brand owner, what are people looking for? If they're looking for me, you know, you know if in this case, it's brand specific, right? right? What are they looking for? And there's a lot of things that I can say, yeah, this is what they're looking for. But there could be things that, that you know, they're looking for and they're using certain terms to get to me or to get to my competition, just as importantly, mm -hmm. that says, wait a minute, I, I wasn't even thinking about this. And then that creates the domino effect. Do I have my products tagged right? You know, do I have them tagged right across the board or there's certain retail relationships where I have to do a better job of tagging them to make sure that when people search for this, I need to account for those types of things. It's, it's a very different world than... You walk into a grocery store, everything from that one category, that entire universe of product is on that shelf. Right. Now that funnel and that expanse is, is so much bigger because of, of, of what's happening in that digital world before yeah. they're even entering the threshold of that store. That, am, I, am I thinking about that in the right way? Oh, there, there's no question about it because, you know, I, and, and this is what I think is so important, this notion of what they, you know, they also call click-string data, right? Um, right. This is something that we see significant interest in because, you know, if you're on the marketing advertising side in particular, you want to better understand what is going through both, you know, my customers and my prospects mind. How are they getting to this? You know, and, and you can assume or think, you and, and look, we clearly, you know, brands know a lot of how people are doing it. But I think, again, what the one concept I think we'll talk about as we move through this is the, the known and the unknown. And, and there's what I know, but even more importantly, what don't I know? And how do I better educate myself and expand that scope? The other part that ties into this is this notion of, of being able to leverage that pre-purchase phase when they're on Amazon, for example, from an ad placement, ad placement, right? And I think especially, you know, especially those on the marketing advertising side are hearing about where things are going with, you know, Google and, and Apple, for example, getting rid of cookie tracking, right? right. Yep. What's happening is, especially if you're on the consumer brand side and, and a retailer, you know, these retail e-commerce platforms are becoming in many ways like ad networks in and of themselves. 100%. And their importance strategically is skyrocketing right now. So being able to have access to that data to understand what people are doing, not only from a search perspective, but once they get to that page and, and are they engaged, are they buying? And then where do they go from there? How can you better educate, better target your, your marketing and advertising budget and try to make it more focused and find some of these pockets where, you know, there's things you weren't even thinking about, but they're there and they're yeah. real. And you can see it because the, these, these digital tracks, if you were, are telling you exactly what's happening. Yeah, it makes it well. Okay, move me through to the next stage then. So the, that's the orange. That's a good overview of the orange. And 
what so the next stage is the pur the, the purplish on the screen there so the, the right. traditional path i mean even as i was saying it i was remarking myself like oh my god i just confused path to purchase with customer journey those are two really different things and i just made that mistake and it's the whole reason yeah. i'm doing this show so i'm like kind of punching myself in the head as i'm talking but yeah. What, what's, well, we'll forgive you because you're yeah. not the only one that does like, that. Like, yeah, but I mean, and that's why I did this because I think it is so easy to fall into that trap. But what you're talking about with traditional path of purchase, right, is the the, the orange and then this next step, right, the the purplish. So tell us what that is. Yeah. So I mean, you know, again, it's pretty straightforward. The notion of point of purchase in the right. itself, right? But that's that's the second part of the path to purchase, and this is where a lot of people look. Now, what what we say here is is, and this brings up a very interesting again dichotomy between where things are from an e-commerce perspective today, and and what you would normally get from the brick and mortar side, right? Mm -hmm. On the brick and mortar side, you have syndicated data. It's been there for a long time. It's good data, and it it, it continues to be very useful. And explain what that is too for maybe anybody that's just interested in the topic that's maybe not as affluent in in all of this. What is syndicated data so people know? Well, that's you know that's the data that's the, that's coming from some of the big providers like a Nielsen or an IRI, right? And then it's telling you know what what type of sales data, what's selling from a category perspective on a retailer basis, a geographic basis, all those different types of things. That right. type of data you know comes from you know. The, the the POS of, of various retailers and stuff. And this is something's been leveraged for a long time. I think where we are from an e-commerce perspective is say, right. okay, how do we do something similar to that? How do we start building that in parallel? And you know, for a lot of our customers in many ways, this is the starting point, right? Because you need a basis to understand, you know, most people will know, okay, what am I selling? But just as importantly, and, and I think what we'll see as we move through this is digitally, you have the ability to see some things that you don't necessarily see on the brick and mortar side. And I think what's really interesting and important here <clears throat> is that you know, companies really want to build up <clears throat> that base of business or excuse me, a visibility into what they're selling, right? And, and have that parallel to the brick and mortar side. And this is a big part of what we talk about, with, with our customers and prospects is building that basis because then it will be impacted in both ways as you look at both the pre-purchase and, and the post-purchase phases. Got it, got it. So yeah, so what happens next then? I mean that, yeah, so, so the big takeaway there like from my, from my understanding talking to you now and talking to you before too is really you've got the, tradition, you've got the point of purchase before the sales have. Now, traditionally we've had a lot of good data standing up that's been stood up around that for the bricks and mortar side. The e-commerce side is now coming. Everyone's trying to get a better hold of that, but there's more, there's a hundred percent, you know, more to the story there after that happens. And that's, that's why this kind of loop that everyone's looking at this on the screen develops. What, what is that loop? What, what, yeah. what is happening there? Yeah. Well, and I, and I think this is important, Chris, right? Because now we're moving out of the path to purchase. And, and this is Go why we, it does not in any way, you know, uh, diminish the importance of those first two phases. They're critical. Right. But when you say path to purchase, you're not really looking at, okay, what's happening in the post-purchase phase? And what's going on? And, and I think the first thing is, is really understanding. And again, this is where the digital nature of the data starts to bring in some really interesting things because okay. you can start to look at things like, okay, um, new lost and retained business, right? Mm. And, and you could go a little bit deeper mm. from a customer perspective and be able to start to say, okay, what are my retention rates? What did I lose? How many, how many you know, what percentage of my customers are new? 
and really stay on top of that because those are critical dynamics. You could also look at things, as I mentioned earlier, from the notion of affinity index, right? What are people mm -hmm. buying with my product? And you know, we, we can talk about that a little bit more, but inherently there's two really important things that are starting to take place here, right? Yeah. You know, in a perfect world, everybody would go into that loyalty loop and they would never leave you, right? But unfortunately, the world doesn't. That's how we like to think right? about it, right? That's how marketers like to think about. It. Okay, you go and you come. Okay, but yeah, how's it you really? Did my work? job, right? Yeah, right. Work is done. You know, they 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 bought the product. They're not going to leave. But yeah. you know, reality dictates to us that you know, unfortunately, you know, that's not what what happened. Now, up until the point of the loyalty loop, this is pretty much the the consumer decision journey that has been out there for a long time. We looked at this and said, but there's something else going on here because we said this is not just a linear journey, especially when you start looking at things from a digital landscape. Right. And what we said is, is look, you know, you you obviously want everyone to go in the loyalty loop, but reality says that's not going to happen. So we said, okay, then you know what happens? And then we, you know, we came up with the term at ten ten, you know, this notion of an infinity loop. And, and we did it because one, obviously, when, when you do that, it, you know, it looks like infinity, but more important, it's a good visual, yeah. <laughs> you know, more importantly is, is you have to start saying, okay, once they bought from me and they don't come back, then, you know, what happens? And, you know, in many ways, it's kind of like, okay, here we go. We're starting all over again. This right. notion of infinity, you know, and, and we're starting over again. But I think what's more important is, is you start looking at things like, you know, Industry metrics tell us that, you know, on average, it's five times uh, more or higher to reacquire those lost customers than it is to retain them. And, you know, we'll talk a little bit more about some of these loyalty things, but the importance of holding on to as many of those customers as possible. And then what is the impact when you're not keeping them in your loyalty loop, they're going into that infinity loop and they're somewhat starting the process all over again. And how can you leverage some of the data that you can get in the post-purchase phase to do two key things, not only drive better customer retention rates, but how does it better inform those people you do have, the people you're successful with, the people that stay with you, how does that better inform your new acquisition strategies? Mm -hmm. and how can you better target and look for those types of customers? Or find out maybe if you're losing people, what is the reason for that? How do we get ahead of that? How do we stop that? Um, so there, there's really two interesting paths that come out of this. And just because, you know, the infinity loop is not the ideal scenario, it's part of doing business, it's not going away. The real question is, how do we make a positive out of this, learn from this, and, and try to incorporate that into those strategies moving forward? Yeah, I think the, the point you said, though, there, it was subtle that I think it's important to bring out is the, the whole the side of loyalty, where it's just how, how just more expensive it is to capture people who haven't already been loyal to you. But then also knowing that that's not the easiest thing to do in today's day and age. Why do you think this is happening, Frank? Yeah. Like, why is this such an important piece of the conversation right now, I think this slide does a great job capturing it. Like what is here that everyone's looking at? Two really main points here. You know, when I mentioned earlier that we're really looking at this notion, the consumer decision journey from an e-commerce perspective. Um, look, it doesn't, you know, everyone's fully aware, especially if you're in the retail CPG space that, you know, we saw incredible growth last year, right? Um, Forbes said that certain categories of e-commerce accelerated four to six years in their growth 
I mean, that that is literally unheard of. Um, and, yes. and it happened in a multitude of categories. But even if you look at our e-commerce panel that we track across the board for 2020, we saw a 79% increase. I mean, you know, there's there's a lot of superlatives and adjectives thrown around about the impact of the pandemic that what happened and you know the word unprecedented and stuff, but I really don't know if there's a better word. We've never seen growth like this ever. No. Um, and so now what you have is if you think of the traditional pipes of e-commerce, you know, almost an 80% increase. I mean, that that is just if you think about the monumental effort it took from both retailers and brands to address that shift, to address that change. Based on our e-commerce panel data, we saw an 82% increase in BOPIS, Pine Line Pickup and Store. 12 to 18 months ago, people didn't even know what BOPIS was, and now we're seeing 82% increases from an e-commerce perspective. If you think about not just that sheer volume of increase, that 79%, but you think about the complexity and you, this is just one example. This is not to, you know, meant to, you know, represent every single little iteration, but this is just one good example of how much more complex it's become. And you think about doing fulfillment, not only from a DC, but from a store now. And as a shopper, you may be competing with an Instacart person reach, both reaching for that last jar of peanut butter, right? That's true. Well, and you brought up, I've, and you brought up the point about affinities too, which I want to dig in more to, but like, I think the point that's, I think kind of the next, even next year, which I, who knows how much time we'll have to cover this today, but maybe we'll do it at a later time. But when you start talking about post-purchase too, how people are getting these products has changed dramatically and the technology that can impact whether or not they come back to that type of experience and how, what the quality of it is really start to matter. And then even with the Finneys, like if you're placed at a certain retailer uh, and uh, your shoppers tend to buy you with somebody else, and those brands aren't placed at that retailer across these different fulfillment types. That's going to impact where you, what your share is, how your growth plays out. Like, there's just a lot more pure. There are a lot more permutations to these questions, I think, which is what this slide I think shows so well. Well, it does, and I, I think it's that notion of complexity, and I think also that you know historically, you know, the word omnichannel has kind of been thrown out there, but I, I think there's no question that the impact of the pandemic and, and the impact on the growth rates and everything, omni-channel really be, you know, if, if people didn't believe it was real before, it became real now. And, you know, people, you know, I think people quickly figured out this is, this is not a nice to have anymore. You know, oh. we have to do this. And, and, and I think it has a direct impact on the way you look at this data, this digital data, and, and how you bake it into your strategies moving yeah. forward. Well, well, and from the guy who runs a blog, OmniTalk, well said, Frank, well said, 100%. You're welcome, Chris. <laughs> I not agree more with that one. Um, I think this is a great slide, too, to capture the other level of it. Because to some degree, what we just talked about, every, like that's been, people have talked about it, right? Digital's growing. Mm. Things are happening at a different pace across all the different omni-channel capabilities. But the competition is also way different now than it ever has been before. What are you, what are you trying to say here? What does this say? So we came across something really interesting. So, you know, even before the pandemic, you know, when you looked at the e-commerce landscape, it was certainly a situation where barriers to entry were lower, right? You're right. not limited by, you know, slotting fees necessarily as much, not in the same way as the brick and mortar world. You're not, you don't have physical limitations per se. So there were already lower entries where smaller competitors could come into this. 
but what we really saw was when people started hoarding, you know, they were doing the stock up buying, you know, all these things. And you're going into stores and you were seeing things you never saw before. You were seeing, you know, shelves just wiped out. And, and suddenly you couldn't become very picky or as picky as you used to be. You know, right. if you were devoted to a certain brand, you know, if your brand of peanut butter wasn't there, you were going to grab almost anything, you know, even yep. if it was an off brand or, or something, you know, something more expensive than what you normally sure. bought. That notion, a lot of that loyalty went out the window last year, especially in 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 you know the heart of the pandemic, where things were really at it, kind of this 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 frenzy, if you will, from a purchasing perspective. So what we did is we you know we, we came across an interesting stat from McKinsey that basically said for for CPG sales of goods from an e-commerce perspective, in March of last year, the market share for small brands under 500 million in annual revenue was 16 percent. Uh -huh. Fast forward one year later, you know, uh, you know, to, to, to February of 21, and you basically saw that market share of those small brands double in size in one year. Again, not to beat up the word unprecedented, but I don't know if we've ever seen anything like this. Mm -hmm. Now, part of this was driven by this stock up buying. But the bottom line is, is that this notion of industry disruption, and, and again, we're going to come back to that term, the known and the unknown, in this case, competition, right? There's your known competition, but think about how fast some of these smaller brands, you know, moved and, and how fast they grew in that 12-month period that we're looking at here and the impact that that can have on your category, you know, and what it could do to your position from a market share perspective. But I think that statistic, it's just absolutely mind-blowing that, 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 that in the, in where the, where all categories are growing so fast from a digital perspective that you could see that much market share growth from small players is just, just insane. But, but Frank, I'm going to put you on the spot here, which is what we yeah. do. Like, <laughs> why should I care? Like all, okay. Yeah. All this is cool. Digital's growing, BOPUS is growing. There's a cool infinity loop that describes the customer purchase journey in a new way. Why should I care? Why does this all matter for everyone watching? Well, you know, and we, we think about that every day, right? And we think about, okay, and, and you know, it, the big thing coming, you know, now that the dust is settling, you know, wherever you think we are relative to the pandemic, I think we can agree there's been some settling of the dust. And, you know, everyone's God, like, let's oh, hope so. <laughs> <laughs> we, all, we all do. Right. Um, the question is now what, you know, yeah. what, what do we expect? Where do we go? And, you know, we talked about it earlier. Last year was all about this notion of fulfillment, just getting things on the shelf. And, and again, the brands and the retailers did an incredible job of addressing that. Um, but, but now that we, we have a settling a little bit is what we're certainly seeing is this notion of, okay, now that we, we, we got things back to some, somewhat of a steady state is, is we got to get back to the notion of putting our focus predominantly right uh, back on the customer. And especially from a retention and a loyalty standpoint, because if you think about what's taken place over the last year, you know, you have some customers that left because maybe you couldn't service them with their particular brand of something they like, whether it was maybe you weren't doing BOPUS initially, if you're a retailer, you know, there's a lot of different variables as we just walked through. Right. But also those people that came to you to get something. But the question now becomes is, well, how many of those customers I lost 
are they coming back? Are they staying somewhere else? For the ones that, that I picked up in the interim, you know, during this pandemic phase, well, how many of those folks are, you know, was yeah, that- How real is this? Yeah, and they're going yeah. back, right? Mm -hmm. So what we're seeing is, is a really big focus back onto this notion of, okay, I got to get back and I really have to better understand, you know, where am I today relative to where I was before the pandemic? And what does this mean as we move forward? But anyway, you cut it, retention and loyalty is, is really top of mind um, in large part from what we're hearing right now. And, you know, again, we'll look at some industry studies that, that kind of looked at some, some percentages on what loyalty means to your existing customer base, right? And again, these numbers will vary, but, you know, 13% they say are your loyalists that will stay. They don't even think twice. Now, again, th this will vary by the type of retailer, the type sure. of brand you are. But then that means, you know, based on this study, 87% are in play. Now, the study went on to say that another 29% are, are kind of what they call these vulnerable repurchasers. They may go kick the tires with other brands or other retailers, but they'll come back to you. Okay. okay so that's now about 42%. But okay. what the study said is, is 58%, you know, on average, and again, it could be higher or lower, are going to be what they call switchers. And if you think about the notion of what we just went through with the pandemic, how easy it is to shop with an e-commerce perspective, think about the selection, right? Suddenly the notion of loyalty becomes a lot more challenging. And so you really have to dig in coming out of the pandemic and you know, back to this notion of now what, this is why that notion of customer retention loyalty is so important. So I just wanna make sure I heard that. I wanna make sure I play that back for everyone. So you said, so basically the, the, the now what is that that loyalty matters here. And it's not a given that everyone's going to come back to you after the first time. And I think the statistic you threw out, I want to make sure I heard it. There's a 58% chance that those who shopped with you before likely or could go somewhere else that they will or buy your brand. Yeah. Or purchase your brand. Yeah. Yeah. They, they think could, about what we just went through where people were grabbing whatever they could. Yeah. So they were being exposed to, to, to brands and, and retail even higher now, that yeah. they've never been a part of. And when what, was that study done, Frank? Who did that study? When was that done? That This is a McKinsey study on loyalty in general. But if you think about those statistics and you apply it to what we're coming out of and, and the options that people have with e-commerce, you know, th those numbers are still very much applicable today. And, you know, if we take it one, one step further, yeah. you know, you have about a 60 to 70% chance of selling something to an existing customer versus five to 20% <laughs> for somebody right. that's never purchased from you before. Right. Okay. Even right. further, you know, you start thinking about what is the real value here? So what, you know, so what, you know, two out of three loyal customers will buy more from you in year three than they will in the, you know, in the first six months that they purchase something for you. So you start thinking about that notion of long-term value, that consistency. That does matter. But I think that, that the capper here is, is Bain and Harvard Business Review did a study together where they basically looked at a 5% increase in your customer retention, in your customer base, can impact your gross margins anywhere from 25% to potentially up to 95%. So when you start thinking about that from a profit perspective and the impact that has, 
it starts becoming very eye-opening. But here's, here's the kicker that we saw from other data, is that in spite of all this that validates this, almost 70% of companies are applying less than 20% of their marketing and advertising budget to loyalty retention programs. That's insane. Why? And, 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 and this is combined with the fact that, you know, in, in most businesses, a minimum, a minimum of 20% of revenue comes from your loyalty program efforts. And in many cases, significantly higher than that. So you start to say, wait a minute, the data tells us how important this is. Now, again, I wanna be clear here. This doesn't mean you just put everything in retention and forget about everything else. Right. But what it does do is say, you know, are we, you know, is the issue that people weren't looking at this post-purchase data or haven't had the opportunity to know a lot of this data even exists to be able to better inform those strategies where they could enhance and increase that budget. Right. Do they have the visibility to understand and extract the full value from it across the total range? That's but, right. but you're pointing out an idiosyncrasy there in terms of just the amount of budgeting, but yet the relative value of the people who have been with you once versus getting them in again and again, especially with, especially with loyalty programs being such a hot topic they are. And with digital being a different way to approach loyalty too, which I think is, you know, inherently when you think about it, step back, that's essentially what you're saying. What's an example, give us an example then to close of like, like where, how can I see that? Like, give me an example that actually brings this to life. Obviously during the pandemic, you know, a healthy lifestyle became even more important, whether it was right. because you wanted to increase your immunity to COVID, sure, whether right. it was because, you know, you were now working at home, you weren't getting out, you were becoming more sedentary or, or a combination of all those things. So we said, well, is there a correlation with what people are looking at? And some of the highest things we saw from um, the highest growth rates of search terms were around health-centric keywords, right? And we okay. started sure, thinking makes sense. like, Organic up 163%, plant-based 148%, you know, gluten-free 99% and vegan 88%. So not unexpected if you think about the correlation, but we said, okay, makes sense so far. But let's let's chase this story further. Let's see if those increase in search terms actually correlated to higher sales. So then we started okay. looking at, at the actual data, the sales data in and of itself at you know, that point of purchase perspective and said, okay, it, it, does this sound good or, or is there a real tie here? The number one category, the number one growth category that we saw with our um, e-commerce panel data was meat substitutes. Meat so substitutes. Obviously, yeah, 199% increase year over year Okay. From wow. substitute e-commerce sales okay. or meat substitute products, I should okay. say. Okay. All right. Okay. So we said, okay, this this does correlate, right? You think about plant-based and things like that, vegan. Okay, we we do. There's a tie here, but we said, okay, let's go further. And if if I'm in this space, if I'm a player in the meat substitute space, what do I want to know? You know, and then now we again get back to that notion of known versus unknown, right? So we said, okay, let's start looking at some of the key players in this space. And this is the type of data that you can now derive from the post-purchase behavior. And this is why it starts to become so critical, right? Okay. So we looked at Morningstar Farms, who is the, the, oh, right. the, the number one brand. I used to in, sell that 10 years ago. Okay. Yeah, yeah. In, in our e-commerce panel, right? Yeah. Yeah. Uh, for, for, meat for meat substitute. So we said, okay, let's, let's take a look. 
Mm -hmm. and, and the data was very interesting, right? And not surprising off the top. You know, phenomenal job. They retained 89% of their customers based on our panel. 11% wow, wow. new, and they saw year-over-year -year growth of 180%. Okay, I mean, fantastic numbers, right? So we said, all right, well, let's, let's you know, this is great, and, you know, it, it's good any way you cut it, but let's, let's look at this a little bit further, and, and let's see if there's something else there that we could find. So we said, all right, we're going to keep following the trail, and we saw something. We said, well, wait a minute. They lost almost two basis points of their market share from an e-commerce perspective. We said, hmm, that's interesting. Huh. And then we said, okay, well, let's, let's cast a wider net. So we looked at, at 12 of the primary players in the, in the meat substitute space, you know, free commerce. And we said, let's look a little closely. Now, remember, they had an 180% year-over-year growth with this, which is phenomenal. But nine out of the 12 key players in the meat, in the meat substitute space had year-over-year growth rates of 200% or more, mm -hmm. okay? So then we said, well, let's keep going. Then we looked at the number two player in the space, which was Beyond Meat. Okay. And they had uh, a 1.5 uh, basis point increase in their market share. They had year-over-year -year growth of 223%. So even though you start to say, you know, the numbers were phenomenal for Morningstar. There are things still that you want to make sure you're looking at. Yeah, but yeah. here's the key that I think the digital data in that post-purchase phase really starts to shine a different light and yeah, allows you to do some things you can't do, traditionally can't do as well. So if you're Morningstar and you said, wow, I lost 10% of my customer base, which was up from 6% loss the prior year, you the, the question you obviously want to ask is, well, wait a minute. Where did these people go? Where the hell did they go? Right. <laughs> so we said, all right, let's keep going. Okay. So we said, all right, 60% of those, you know, of the 10% of the customers that they lost, 60% of those went to the second and third largest players in the space. So 60% okay. went there. Then we said, okay, that's a big number in and of itself, but you know, 40% that went to those, those smaller players. Now that gets back to that notion of the, you know, some of the industry disruptors and you know, kind of your known competition sure. versus a little bit more of your unknown. So now you're able to say, okay, I see you know, where they went from my larger competitors, but I also have visibility because 40% of those lost customers went to someone who's on the smaller side. What is that going to do over time? You know, and how do I make sure I stay ahead of that? Then I could go one step further and say, well, what did they buy from those folks? Right? Was it, you know, did they buy because it was a price issue? Was it a quality issue? Was it a pack size issue? Is it because a certain retailer only carries certain things? Right. Yeah. yeah, there's a level of granularity here that really lets you see it through. And I think the point is, is even though Morningstar Farms probably did everything they could potentially do and had a great year, there's still things you want to be aware of. And you could look at the data in a way that I think is unique to e-commerce. Yeah, which is, yeah, which is different too, in a way you would, yeah, you're right. I never thought about that. Like you would never see that in terms of traditional, like how you're traditionally deriving the data in terms of the bricks and mortar side of things to see like where they're actually switching to and switching to and why. Um, well, what, that, wow. Okay. I got to, let that sink in for a little bit actually yeah and that's the big that's the big one but i think yeah. the other thing that i think would be interesting to people is is this notion of affinity 
or you know, yeah, you mentioned that a few times. What does that mean? Identity. Yeah, and and I think this is a really important one as well because this starts to feed. This is where I think you start to see this whole decision journey become more of a living, breathing thing. And then this hmm. is where I think you start to look at it as this is not a linear journey of of ABC. You know, this starts to become almost more like a circulatory system where this thing's on twenty four seven. Because what we looked at is is okay. You know, when we're looking at meat substitutes, we also started saying, okay, what is what is our affinity numbers telling us? And affinity is essentially, what is the likelihood that if someone's buying a certain uh, product or category, that they'll be buying my product as well? Mm-hmm. So we started to look at this and, you know, we have some pretty complex algorithms and things and, you know, we'll score things and look, you could, you know, we're not going to look at, you know, eggs, milk, bread, you know, those are pretty sure, much things that everyone always has in the back all the time. Right. So yeah. we'll score those lower, but we start to look at what are those things that make sense. And what we started to see is there's this pretty high correlation at the category level between meat substitutes and sparkling water. So we huh. said, okay, let's, let's take that a little bit further. So we said, all right, let, let, let's, let's take another step. Then we said, okay, let's take one of the brands. We looked at Beyond Meat and we said, okay, does Beyond Meat still see that affinity with sparkling water? Yeah, they see it. So then we said, well, let's start looking at it on a retailer by retailer basis, because a lot of this could be dependent upon the retailer themselves, what they right. carry versus another retailer. So right. we said, all right, let's follow this. So then we looked at target.com and what Beyond Meat was doing. Yeah, the affinity was still there with sparkling water. And we said, okay, well, let's go one step further. Is there a brand within there? And we started seeing there was this high affinity between Beyond Meat and Bubbly. And, and, and what I, I think we're seeing here is, is that you could start to do things that are unique. And it gets back to my point earlier. This digital data really opens up a lot of new doors and, and it's exciting what you can see and what you can do. And, and what this information is doing is, they, I talked about this earlier, it can not only inform what you can do better from a customer retention standpoint, but think about if you're on the marketing and advertising side and you're thinking about how do you want to associate and you're thinking about ad placements and you're starting to see some of these categories that have a higher affinity, why wouldn't you want to allocate some of your budget, try this out and say, does this bear out, you know, and try it at different retailers. But the, the, the data you can have to inform, to help you do a better job. We know how difficult it is to acquire new customers. I mean, look, I'm a marketing guy. I know how difficult this world can be. When you have this level of data that can better inform what you're trying to do, this really starts to change the dynamic of the way that you can do things. Yeah, I, I, I've never thought like, that's a whole nother angle here at the end too, where you talked about how it's not linear anymore, but now it's almost, you use the circulatory system, which is an interesting knowledge, but it's almost like it's conjoined. Like the decisions people are making are conjoined at the hips with the decisions that others are making. And that impacts your distribution strategy, both in stores and online in ways that you could never see before or tease apart. And yeah, it, it, and it naturally makes sense because we're all busy. I mean, the one, I mean, it's kind of the Amazon thing. Like we always want to go where the path, the path of easiest convenience. Right. Right. So if I can go to that trip digitally or in store, like my decisions are probably going to be conjoined to other things that I know I can find and know I can do quickly. So that's a whole nother, that's a whole nother stream of, of what you're talking about in terms of the value. It, It is. And I, and I think, you know, when we look at that, you know, I think historically, especially when we looked at the journey more from a brick and mortar perspective, you had more definitive lines between three stages. 
I think the digital data is starting to erode and fade those lines. And, and yes, there's still a pre-purchase phase, there's still the moment of purchase and there's still post-purchase. But I think the eroding of those lines mean that you can leverage those datas, that, that data for different things that you're doing. And it informs more and there's more overlap between what can I pull out of that data and how does that help me do a better job be it from a marketing advertising perspective, from a loyalty perspective, even the way I do my online merchandising, right? Am I tagging my products the right way? Can people find me the right way when they're on a, a particular, you know, retailer's e-commerce platform? All those things really start to feed together. So it's not, you know, it's not where people have different jobs, but you can now leverage a broader swath of information to help you do your job in a more informative way. Right. Well, Frank, you've been on the, let's close, let's wrap. That's a good point to wrap it on. Like you've, you've been down this journey, like you said, in the very opening, you're an expert and I'm calling you that because I think you are, you're an expert for, you know, 20 plus years and you've been on this journey yourself. What's, what's the one piece of advice you would have in the context of this discussion for other marketers that are out there listening to what we've just talked about that they could take back, think about for their jobs, you know, over the next, I say week, month, whatever it might be. Yeah, well, I think I would say first and foremost, if you're not leveraging this notion of alternative third party data, which is really focused on consumer spending and e commerce movements and whatnot, you need to. I think what we see more often is, is people have bits and pieces of the information, they have parts of this. But, you know, the reason we speak to it from the notion that consumer decision journey is, is there's, there's really this broader, more holistic nature that I think could be very beneficial when you look at it and you could pull data from, from one, one central place that looks at that notion of what's happening in the pre-purchase phase at the moment of purchase, the point of purchase, and then what's happening afterwards and understanding that connection and that notion of, you know, it's, it's, it's not, you know, the, the, the term, the, the shopper journey or the decision journey is not linear anymore. It's not a new concept per se, but I think we're finally seeing the quality and the granularity of the data truly makes that come true now. And, and I can't think of a better way to describe it. So, you know, as a circulatory system. So I think the key thing here is, is this notion of, you know, using this alternative third-party data, but using it in the right way. It's, it, it's you know, trying to take that more, more holistic view and making sure you're accounting for each of those, st those stages. And, and I think the more you look at it, you see how those, those walls between the stages start to fade and how they start to erode and how they inform each other. And I think that's really the key takeaway here is there's data there that can, can really help you strategize, help you execute better, really inform things. And I think inform is the big word. I think I've used it probably seven, eight times, but really better informing what you know um, what you thought you know, but maybe you didn't know and, and how that relates to the way that you can make decisions better. Yeah, I think the way I'd sum it up is uh, to borrow, to paraphrase Scott Van Pelt of ESPN is how good is your good? That's a really what you're getting at here really is like, yeah. how good is your good at the end of the day? Like, do you have all the data to inform whether or not you're as good as you think you are? Because there's very different uh, gradations in good and how good is your good? If you're a marketer listening to that, that I think kind of is my my takeaway from the conversation as well. Well, Frank, that was awesome. Always great to have you guys on the show. Anybody from 1010 Data, what if people were listening to this conversation and they said, hey, okay, yeah, I want to know how good my good is or how do I start thinking about that more? What's the best place? What's the best way for them to reach you? What's the best place for them to go? 
Yeah, um, I mean, a couple of different ways, whatever they're comfortable with. I mean, certainly, you know, 1010 data, the number 10, number 10 data.com. Uh, we have a lot of these reports that are, that are free to download. Um, you know, complimentary access for that if people want to find out more, um, just to engage more with the types of things that we do. Um, if they'd like to talk to somebody, sales at 1010 data, or if they want to, you know, if they want to reach out to me, they could come to me on LinkedIn or I'm at uh, frank.reva1010data.com as well. Awesome. Awesome. Well, thanks, Frank. Thanks for that. Thanks to everyone, too, who's been submitting their, their questions through the chat as well. It's always great to see the activity there. Uh, on behalf of Frank, again, 1010 Data, VP of Marketing, on behalf of Frank, uh, to all of you, I say it all the time. We're, looks like, like Frank said, the dust is about to settle. Looks like we're getting closer to getting through this whole thing. I say it all, every week, every interview. Be careful out there. 